as we prepare to receive the Word of God, I really would continue to encourage you as they bear the gospel and the light of God's Word to the people in Ukraine, if you'd remember them in your prayers and if you'd join with them. Would you bow with me now as we come before the Lord together? I just want to give you a few moments before we enter back into First Peter. And if the images that you saw during the skit, if they reminded you of your own life and the things which Jesus <laughs> has shown to you, has taught you, has brought into your life, would you just spend a little bit of time just communing and thinking about those things which possibly separate you from the Lord and you desire to remove all barriers of fellowship, what Christ Jesus died and gave his life to do so that he may be reconciled to you and you to him. Spend a little bit of just time, just give you a few moments before the Lord. some of us, Father, it was a long time ago, and for some of us it wasn't too long ago, when the words of the Apostle Paul and Ephesians were true for us, that we were people without a hope, without a citizenship in your kingdom, who had no proper relationship before you except for as a rebel, before a God of mercy and all creation, and that Jesus, in your mercy, that you came to us, in your mercy, and you gave your life for us so that they might be the great transfer of all of our sin unto your pure and perfect form and all of your righteousness given to us so that we might know what it means to be the righteousness of God, to be purified and cleansed, what it means to be freed of a guilty conscience and have our heads lifted up by the Savior, to stand before you unashamed because we stand not in our own righteousness, but the righteousness which we have been encloaked, enrobed, that you've freely given to us. And we stand, Father, in awe of knowing that these robes of righteousness not only bring us into your family, but bring us as the heirs of the kingdom. And that these are princely garments that you have put upon us. And that we are, Father, redeemed by you to enter into your kingdom, of which we have already begun as you've brought us, Father. For we pray these things, God, never in our own as if we deserve anything but because of the great mercy that is given to us freely by grace in Christ Jesus. In His name we pray it. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're back in the book of 1 Peter. And I would remind you, the 1 Peter is a book of persecution. It is written to a suffering church, and the suffering of this church is being incurred by the fact that they have become Christians. And that is something that we know just, I think, a little bit about, but it's somewhat foreign to our experience. And the things that cause me to snap wide awake are when I hear about stories about what Christianity is like in other countries. I sat down and had lunch with one of our missionaries, and we spent a few hours in conversations. And he was telling me about just what was going on in China and what was happening among the house churches there. And he said that at this meeting of Chinese church leaders, that he met a man who one of the patriarchs of the Chinese church. And this man had come before the church and had just recently been freed, for he was arrested and imprisoned for his faith by the communist government for 25 years. And this person that had such a credibility to stand before all the other house church leaders because of what he endured for Christ, that he said that this man was so humble because 
of what had happened during in prison. And he said, brothers, I have no cause for pride before all of you. He said, my faith actually broke during the time that I was there. And ten minutes before I was going to be released, I tried to commit suicide. And he said the reason why he did that was because when they were calling him, whatever officials and politically it happened that he could be released, when they were calling him that you are now free to go and your imprisonment of 25 years has ended, when they called him for that time, they thought that he was being called, he thought he was being called for another one of the sessions. And so it's not just 25 years, it's being in a jail, it's these repeated regular sessions of torture and abuse to get them to renounce Christ. Can, for 25 years, this man endured. 25 years unbroken in faith. And 10 minutes before his release, you know, he just he felt like he could not take another one of these things. And thank God that he did not succeed in his attempt. And God released him. But to endure that for decade after decade, for the faith, to stand strong in Christ, I think is a bright, shining testimony. And it's different than what we undergo here. But it is something of what these Christians understood and knew. And so Peter writes to encourage them. And he gives them this entire letter to fortify their faith. And so we want to also take that into us. And in this text, I want to just read from chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Let me just read this together for us. This is the first thing that Peter says after the greeting. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instantly taking these people who are suffering, whose heads are bowed down with weariness and loss and shame before the world. And he lifts up their head and he said, look up, look up. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's a, a word to us in a, a great word in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says that no trial that is ever going to befall any one of you is not common to man. So there's a unity and a fellowship that we share that everything that we've gone through, we, there's a kinship that we all kind of go through the same kinds of trials. That is one word of comfort, but another word of comfort that joins that in the fullness of scriptural counsel is this word here that says it is a many different kind of trials and griefs which we had to suffer. So I take a biblical warrant to expand and explode that out and say there are unique trials, griefs and temptations and hardships, setbacks, disappointments, struggles that are absolutely unique to your own life that you know intimately and that God is aware of. And if you ever thought, no one knows what I'm going through, in some ways, this scripture acknowledges that. In some ways, it's a uniquely personal, sacred thing to go through suffering. And yet there is one, a God who is saying, I do understand. I know what it is, as only I can in all this world, know what you've gone through in these all kinds of griefs, in these all kinds of trials. As Peter speaks into these trials of this first community, and speaks into our trials, he said, nevertheless, while you sorrow, in this you rejoice. 
And so this scripture, as many others in the Bible, take it as an assumed, take it as an assumption that we as human beings that God created and designed us to have a capacity to even while being sorrowful, to be rejoicing. It depends which is greater. It depends which you are attuned to. Are we more attuned to the hardship, more attuned to the disappointment, more attuned to the loss? Or do we not want our lives to be attuned to a greater reality, which this scripture is now putting us in tune with? There is a, in this you greatly rejoice, so that even in the midst of difficulty, there is a joy that can still be greater and above, higher and deeper than the suffering that you are presently undergoing. For that to happen, there must be a this. There must be a this. What is this in this you greatly rejoice, even though at the present time you undergo suffering. What it's talking about this, in this you greatly rejoice, is in the preceding verses which we find here. When it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me read that part one more time, that He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What we are to rejoice in and place our joy firmly in to carry us even through trial, even through difficulty, is this, it's what He says here, that we have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is this word that is encapsulated in this verse, this hope. This is what defines us. This is our identity. And I want us to self-consciously identify ourselves as this. This is what it means to be a new hope fellowship. A new hope fellowship. When Peter writes, when we just said what we just read here in verse 6, though you've had to suffer grief now for a little while, I can hear the whispering of many people who are listening to this in these communities that Peter is writing to, saying, Little while. Suffering grief for little while. How do you define little while, Peter? I mean, I've been going through what I've been going through for months, for years. What, what do you mean that I've had to suffer grief for a little while? What is, what is your definition of a little while? And Peter's definition of a little while is the same as Paul's definition of a little while when he speaks in Romans 8. That I do not consider our light and momentary afflictions worthy to be compared to the immeasurable weight of glory that is to be revealed. Both Paul and Peter and all the New Testament writers understood the suffering that we endure in this life is for a little while. It is momentary because their scope of vision was not a week's or month's or year's vision. The scope of the panorama of their inner view in which they view the entire world, their life and all of existence stretched out from eternity out into eternity, in which this brief sliver of time in which I occupy, everything is just a little while, and I put it into its proper perspective, and it gives it its proper shape and its proper weight. When the scriptures here talk about a living hope that we have been born again into through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this is a most actually earnestly, I think, ought to be an Easter sermon. What we're talking about, a living hope that is a resurrection. Hope in this biblical form is not an optimism. 
It's not a probability. Actually, I sometimes have a bit of a difficulty when if I'm going through a hard time and somebody says that it's going to be okay, and it's, it's meant to comfort me, but it's always for me a shallow, cold comfort. I'm thinking, how do you know that? How do you know it's going to be okay? I mean, how, you know, I know you're saying that to comfort me, but you don't even know that it's going to be okay. You're saying that just to comfort me. And for myself, I've learned as I grow older and older, I cannot, it's no longer emotionally possible for me to put my hope on things which I cannot bank upon and know is secure and firm and it's going to stand all the weight that I could put upon it. The hope that is in these verses is not the hope that says, maybe it will be okay, maybe it won't be. It is not the hope that says, well, the sun's going to come out tomorrow anyway. When we put up as our banner logo that dawning light through the mountains as that is a New Hope Fellowship. It's not giving you the optimism of this world that says, maybe it'll be okay. Don't worry about it too much. You know, the sun will come out anyway tomorrow. The dawning of our logo, what it is attempting to depict, is not the dawning of a new day in a 24-hour cycle in that day. It is taking the long view from eternity to eternity, and saying that we are, as New Testament, New Hope believers, living in the long dawning of the kingdom of God as it is stretching forward and rising, and the shrinking shadows of the darkness of this world. And that is inviolate. That is, in, to use a big word, inexorable. We cannot change that from happening. Because it does not rest upon us. It does not rest upon the fluctuations of our hope and our joy, which goes up and down in this world. It rests upon the death and the resurrection as the pivotal Archimedean turning point of all of time-space creation. I just said a lot of big things there. (laughs) Those are some pretty big concepts. What I mean by that, when we think about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Now, this is going to be the last big concept before I start bringing things a little bit downward into maybe apply them to our lives. But try to wrap your mind around this. Try to let your mind expand and grow into this. The death and the resurrection of Christ, it is the most personal event that anybody can ever experience. That when you, no matter who go with me, no matter who leave me, no matter my mother, my father, my friends forsake me, I come before God and I experience Him in the cross. And I meet him in his death and his resurrection for me. And I have died with him and I am being raised with him. It is the most personal, intimate event that anybody can ever experience. It is the most personal, intimate event that you have located in your own core history. And there's something about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ which was the most public, the most important event that ever happened in all time, space, history. The biblical meaning as we read this book from cover to cover, from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, is that when Jesus Christ died, He not only died for our sins, but it was the curtain call of the end of this age of the world. When He died, He was making a marker in history and saying, thus endeth this age of the world. And when He died, that age was over. It is why that Jesus' life marks the BCAD. Jesus closes his entire age. And then in three days, there's just a pause in history. Those three days actually should not be accounted in human history. But in those three days, time ceases to exist as Jesus is no longer on the scene. 
Jesus Christ dies to close out all of the old previous history. And then by the power and the divine fiat of God who alone can do this, God raises Jesus Christ. And His resurrection is not like the resurrection of Lazarus. When Jesus Christ called Lazarus from the grave and said, Lazarus, arise! And by His divine power, resuscitates Lazarus from the dead. And this person who was completely dead, brain activity ceased, he was no longer breathing, all of a sudden begins, his heart begins to beat, and he begins to live. He is made alive again, but he is still mortal. Lazarus still only got about 30, 40 more years. He's still going to die, so that every breath that Lazarus took in his post-resurrection life was one, on one side living and one side dying. One side living another year which he never should have had, and another side, one year dying and getting closer to the grave. The living of Jesus Christ in his resurrection is not this kind of living. That resurrection marks the beginning of a new age where death and sin and things that fade and spoil and perish no longer exist. Jesus Christ, to put it in another New Testament writer's language, is the firstborn of a new creation is the new dawn of a new age. And so as Jesus Christ raised, is raised from the dead, the living hope that we are talking about in this part of Scripture is not the kind of hope that is an one side living, one side dying. The living hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it simply lives and simply stands and is an eternal hope and connects us with an entire new world. I seem to get, can't get away from these big concepts. <laughs> Scripture understands that in a spatial dimension in this way. That you've been relocated from a kingdom of darkness and into now the kingdom of light. And another way that the Scriptures understand that is that you weren't, were part of the old man and the old nature of the old age and now you have been transferred and picked up by your conversion, by your new birth, by your being born again into a new age, a new kingdom, a new life that is in Christ Jesus. And so for those of us all, including the people that this book addresses to, the communities of First Peter, who struggle with our identity, it is giving us a whole new identity. Let me, let me talk a little bit. About identity, who it is that I am, and what do I belong to? What am I part of? We began the series by saying that the purpose of this book is to reconfigure our identities and the stories which inform who it is that we understand ourselves to be. And so let me just make this personal and start bringing this down into our lives. So myself, when, or, or let me just take one more scriptural point. The people that, these, that this letter is written to, that the different communities of churches that these people are involved in, these people... If you read all over the New Testament, there's a kind of a Jew-Gentile struggle because these people were part of two different cultures, at least. And so many times they were of a Jewish heritage, but they were living in a political Greco-Roman environment and the, and the power of Rome was that which was spreading all over the ancient world. And so these people, the whole reason why that this letter comes to us in its original form in Greek, being penned by a Jewish person, it's because even though this person was of Jewish heritage, he lived in a Greco-Roman world. And so he was constantly thinking biculturally. 
And in some ways, I understand that myself being bicultural. And so ethnically, from my heritage, from my forebearers, I'm Korean. But I am, by citizenship and by political reality, I am an American. And so I've often wrestled with this in my culture and my distinctive of who it is that I am. I've, I've spoken about this before in these kinds of terms. And it is an amazing thing that when you realize your identity, and these things kind of start coming up from the deepest parts of who you are in your own self-identification when you think about yourself. And the events, and, I, and the reason why, even though I've spoken about this before, I take us back here is because these were defining events for me. That in 2001, in September, I was in Chicago at that time, and two planes hit the Twin Towers. And though I was about a thousand miles away in Chicago, I felt like when those planes hit and we saw the news footage over and over again that day, I felt like somebody punched me in the gut. I felt something in the deepest part of myself cry and ache and start to bleed. And I could not help but identify myself with what had happened. I could not help but think that when those people died in those towers, those were my countrymen. And I remember thinking from the depth of who I was, I am an American. 2002, the World Cup was held in a small country called South Korea. And as that country hosted the, the World Cup tournament, and I saw my dad would be calling me, and th- you know, he'd be watching the World Cup at 3 a.m. East Coast time, and he said, did you watch the game? And I'd say, like, Dad, you watched it. It's 3 o'clock, you're in your almost 70. And he's saying, we've got to watch it because for the sake of our country. He didn't mean USA. He's an American citizen too. But, but the thing is, but I got it. I understood. Because whenever I turned on the game or I got someplace where I could watch the game, there were 40,000 people. And in that stadium, in that chant that was unbelievable, united as one, crying out for the pride of their country. And as I watched this, and especially when it all came down to it, when it came down to Team USA and Team Korea, and they're playing that one match and going to the qualifying rounds, I thought, oh my gosh, my gosh, my gosh. I'm Korean too. I am Korean. I am Korean. I'm a Korean-American, American-Korean, however way that works out. And at one point in my own personal history, in my own narrative, that became not so important to figure out how much of which I am there became a superior allegiance that I gravitated to that grasped all of who I was. Whether we are ethnically whatever it is that we define ourselves, however we define ourselves in whatever different way, shape, and form, our first allegiance and our first citizenship, our deepest understanding of this this is my country, these are my people, it is the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ gives us a new birth into a living hope, he is taking us from different kingdoms and basically the kingdom of this world, and he is placing us into his kingdom. And this kingdom, which is coming, which is in his reigning and in his ruling and his might that is being given to all the world. So let me read these words for us again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power 
until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed for the last time, in the last time. What this makes us is it makes us a radically future-oriented people. You must fight this in your own mind, in your own personal psychology. You must stop being a people of the past. You must stop being shackled by, enslaved by the things that have occurred in your own personal history. You must not allow yourself to be dominated by, if only I had done this, I could have done this, I should have been there, I could have. These things which so drag you down and keep you, hinder you from running, these things must become to an end. You must face forward and think everything is in the future of what God has kept for me and is keeping me for in the inheritance, in this inheritance. Gordon Conwell, we had the privilege of meeting Billy Graham. And I remember as he was doing a question and answer with us, seminary students. And this one seminary student, had, he, he could just tell. He thought he had, the, he, had the, he had the best question. He had the question to ask Billy Graham. And you know, this is, seminary students, you are unbelievably arrogant. So he's standing there and saying, Dr. Graham, you know, with, with all that you've done and all of your accomplishments and you've evangelized Asia and, and Europe and your crusades of millions and millions. This is now in your remaining years that you have left. What would you like to do, Dr. Graham, with the time that you have left? He sat down. And Billy Graham, is, he just stared off for a moment. It just, he just stared off for a moment. It's like eternity just starts just kind of getting into his brain, just starts to stare off. And he says, I want to go. He says, I want to go to heaven. I'd like to go to heaven. And then we all just kind of laughed, and we thought, okay, right, okay, right, you know, but that's not your answer, right? You know, you want to break into, you know, communist curtain, fall down, you want to go into Russian? And he just started looking around for the next question. That was his answer. I want to go to heaven. It's where I've always been headed. I've locked myself, not defining myself by my past, but by my future. And I've locked myself onto that eternity. And I am bringing myself closer with every depth, every breath, every day, with everything that I do. That is my target goal. It's not to go to the grave, but through the grave, resurrected with Jesus Christ into his kingdom. And to be received there by a God who will say, and now enter into your master's happiness. I share it with you. And so he told us that day, you know, somebody said, are you going to write an autobiography? And he said, it would be hard for me. He said, I have forgotten so much of my life. He said, I've forgotten all these things in the past. He said, I'm just not looking there. He's a future-oriented individual. Every single member of the New Covenant Church, of the new people of God, of the people of hope, it is a hope people that are looking constantly to the future, running there, directed there. He says, into an inheritance which can never spoil, perish, or fade. And so we've got to stop and we've got to uproot all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our security from being in the things of this world which always spoil, always perish, always fade. These are a recapitulation, an echo of the words of Jesus. Saying, why do you store up your treasures in things where moth can eat and destroy and thieves can break in and steal? Why would you let your hope and your joy go up and down with your bank account, with your success in your career path, with the things that you can accomplish in this world? Uproot from terra firma your joy and put it there in that which can never spoil, never perish, never fade. Your own physical bodies, I have to tell all of you probably, your own physical bodies are God's message and parable 
to you, that he speaks to you every day, that when you wake up thinking, oh, I, that, that wasn't there before. I have no idea where this pain in my joints is coming from. And, and when you try and run up a hill and you are out of breath, and you're thinking, I, I, shoot, I, I could have done that just like that when I was younger. And your own physically, let me just say this to you all, your own physically decaying bodies, of which Western medicine can only do so much, your physically decaying bodies are a message to you saying that there is something greater which you are to put your stock in that is not perishing, is not spoiling, is not fading. May it not be in your health, your beauty. May it not be the things of this world. Everything in this world breaks down. It spoils. It fades. I've learned that message a million times in my life. Let me just share one. I just, today, the, everything breaks down. I mean, it would be great if that, if, that, if that wireless mic, if it always worked, if it was just kind of an, on an eternal battery and, and we would always count on it. Everything in this world runs down. It's the nature of it. And if you remember me sharing this, I think, I think when it, my first year when I came to this, I told you about this one Wednesday I had because it was awful. I brought my car to be serviced into, into a Midas shop and, and, uh, and they said, you know, this might take a little bit longer than we thought. And so I said, okay. I prepared for this. You know, I'm not going to let anything kind of, you know, slow me down. So I brought my bike, bike to a nearby Starbucks and waiting for the phone call that says, your car's ready now. A few hours go by. They call and say, Mr. Kim, we can't get your car done by today. We're sorry, but something we didn't plan for happened. What happened was that a, 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 a truck that they had put up on one of those big hydraulic lifts had fallen <laughs> off. I don't even know how that happened, but it had fallen off. And he said, we've got to clear all the debris out before we can even get your car in there to fix it. So I said, fine, I'm ready. I guess why I, pr- I planned for this. I got my bike, and so I biked home. I thought, I'm not stranded, I'm fine. I'm you know, independent and got it all under control here. And so you know, next day he said, all right, come get your car. It's all fixed already. So I'm, I'm, I'm biking there. I'm thinking, like, you know, I'm so in control of my life. You know, just, I got it all down. It's all together. As I'm biking there, and I get a flat tire. And all of a sudden, this thing which is supposed to carry me, this bicycle, I've got to start carrying. It's <laughs> just weighing me down. And there's no way I'm going to even make it to Midas. But in, in Evanston, there is a bike shop one, hour, one mile north of me, and, and there's another bike shop two miles south of me. And Mama Kim, not having raised any dumb boys, uh, went to the bike shop one mile north of me. That makes sense. So I'm carrying my bike up to this one mile north. And I'm thinking, that's no problem. I've got it all under control. You know? And uh, there's a little bit of grumbling because I had just taken my bike in for spring maintenance, just so this wouldn't happen, but whatever, it's fine. And so I'm going to go to this bike shop, I'll get my tire fixed, and then I'll go pick up my car. And as I'm going up there to get into uh, this bike shop, I finally reach it. I'm sweating up a storm by this time, but I've made it. And just as I get there, I kind of mark myself, just make it there, make it there, I made it there. Awfully dark for a bike store. And there I see on this door, open Monday through Tuesday and Thursday through Sunday. And so then I'm calculating my, or Monday through, through okay, then Thursday to Sunday, Monday. There's a gap, there's a gap. Why? Who closes on Wednesday? Who closes on Wednesday? Well, I mean, I get Sunday, I get, you know, Monday even, but who closes on a Wednesday? And so now I gotta bike three, I gotta carry my bike three miles south in order to get my bike tire fixed so that I can go pick up my car, which was supposed to be ready yesterday, and I got my bike fixed, and so I'm just started going like, then by that time, I finally lost it. And God in the midst, speaking, saying, yeah, it's not chance that all these things happen. I am teaching you something. In this life, you can never prepare for everything. 
You can never cover all the bases. You're never going to do it. You try and live your life so that you have been able to manage everything, control everything, get everything figured out so that life will always go smoothly. And you're setting up yourself, my son, for a life of heartbreak. Do not put the gravity of your hope and the weight of your joy upon these things which will spoil and fade and perish. It cannot bear that weight. This world was never meant to. This world was meant to eventually crumble away and give birth to an entire new creation. That new creation in the inheritance of the kingdom of God is built with eternal things. I do not know when Revelation says that the streets in heaven are made with gold, if that is a literal meaning. Gold in, that, in, the, in this world was understood as meant to be an enduring substance. A substance that can withstand through the ages and is still bright and brilliant. And everything in heaven is gilded with the eternal power and the glory of God, which can never fade or spoil or perish. And we are made for that. And in the new birth, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, lifted up above our present circumstances into a future of joy, that is the basis upon which we hope. That is our hope. It is not a maybe it'll get better, maybe it won't. I, don't, I hope this turns out okay, but I may, it may not. I hope I get this job, but I may not. Those are all secondary things. And the thing that is always overarching and greater in the great arc of our life is this hope that we carry within us that says, I know. I don't guess. It's not a probability. I know how it all ends. And I'm headed there inexorably by the sovereign will of God who keeps that inheritance and who keeps me shielded by His power until He is ready to take me there. He is shielding me by His power until He is ready to take me into a place where I will need shielding no more. I know how it ends. And so every day, every day, there is a joy that I can live with so much so that I think if Peter did not live in the first century and Peter lived in, let's say, uh, 1500s England, I think someplace it was, I think as he was writing this letter, I think that he would have put a little attachment letter to this. And he said, I'll tell you what I'm trying to say here, folks. I think he said, I'm going to give you a little bit, of, uh, just, just this little bit of an extra. It's not God's word. I'm just going to just kind of tack it on here to this letter and send you. I've written a song. It's a little ditty, and I'm kind of fond of it. And I want, I want you to hear it because I think that, I think it encapsulates some of what I'm trying to say here, what God's saying to you all. The song goes like this. And because he lives... Yeah, because he lives. It doesn't mean that he's, he's living. That means he's already gone through the death because he lives. It's God's megaphonic declaration to the world that there's nothing that he cannot do, not even death. He can overcome all things because he lives. I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living because he lives. That's a living hope based upon the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead into eternity. So let me, let me close it to you in, in, the, in these terms. Put this in your mind. 
and let me just reiterate what I said one, one more time, and, or actually say it in a different way. Um, the scriptures uh, who are written by the God who created and designed our, our being, our, our psyche, takes it as an axiomatic uh, assumption that we have the capacity as human beings created by God to be able to take the joy of something that's going to happen in the future and have it inform and reshape our present circumstances. That we have that ability. It's a muscle we've got to exercise. That even in the present suffering, we can take the glory of a joy that we know, as long as we know it's going to happen in the future. And we can take that future joy and we can transplant that into our present worry and our present circumstances that are difficult. It is almost the biblical definition of hope. It is the hope principle that works itself out in the New Testament. And it works something like this. I'm going to draw from a sporting analogy, and wherever I go wrong in this analogy, you all can correct me. But consider if you are part of a team that's playing a game of, let's say, football, and you're making a wreck of it. You are, you are being killed. Yay, you are being crushed. The other team happens to be younger than you, more talented than you, and you wish it was just kind of like a brash arrogance that made them all kind of go different ways because everybody wants the ball and they're all just kind of playing. But no, they're, they're a tight phalanx unit which is just decimating you and destroying your team. And so by the half, you go into a huddle and all of you are despondent and dejected and feeling like, oh man, it's over, isn't it? I mean, just this is ridiculous. We're getting killed out there. I don't want to go back out there. Don't make me go back out there. They call us horrible things out there on the field. They use words like nice. We're nice. I, I hate that. I don't want to be nice. I want to, I want to win. They're too quick. They're too talented. They've got too much energy and power. And that one guy with the massive quadriceps, I am scared of him. I don't want to face him. I don't want to be on the line with him. Now all of a sudden, this presence comes in the midst of your team. He's a coach. And he is the picture of calm. He's so serene. What is informing his calm? And he starts walking amongst you all. And all of a sudden, you start, you start quieting down. All the griping, all the grumbling, all the like, why didn't you do this? And, and if only you had done this, maybe it would have been. And, and why, could, I, why did I mess up there? And all of a sudden, the room goes quiet as the coach enters into the room. And the coach is beaming and he's shining. And he's looking at you all. And something in his face instantly starts to say, I'm going to listen to whatever it is you say. And all of a sudden the coach looks at every single one of the players and says, You all know, don't you? What? You all, you don't know. What? You're going to win. You're going to win. Did you not know that? Did you think you were going to actually lose because of your failures? You're going to win. You're going to win. You're going to win. The exhaustion starts to drain away. All of the bitterness and the backbiting of each other and all the, why did I mess up and all the getting so into your head. Why did I do that? All starts to drain away. And everything that said, I'm scared to go back out there, new courage take. It's a fresh wind, a fresh energy. That is the essence of biblical hope. And you get out there and you play with all of your heart. Because you already know, you know what's going to happen at the end. You know how it ends. 
every setback from that point on, every time somebody misses a pass, it's okay. Not, it's okay, I don't know what's going to happen. It's okay. There is a wave of victory that is coming across, and we are on the right side, and it is going to overtake the other side, because there he is, he's the captain of our host. He's the hero, and he has emerged on the scene. We get the ball to him, and it is going to be all over. That's basically a sports definition of faith. Don't try to carry the ball yourself. Pass it to one who can make the shot. He will carry the team to victory, always, always. Let us, as we close in prayer, take all the burdens and the worries of our temporal life in this brief sliver of time, a vapor, a breath, the scriptures call it, Ecclesiastes. Let us take them, roll them off of our small shoulders onto the great eternal shoulders of God, whose arms stretch from eternity to eternity. The greatness of God, that song which I quoted from before, the refrain is, great is thy faithfulness, not mine. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Great is thy faithfulness. Would you pray with me as we close? world in which we live in, and you know that because you walked it before us. And Father, too many, far too many people in this world too tired to live and too afraid to die. (laughs) Let it not be so. Let it not be so among brothers and sisters and children of the kingdom of God, whom you carried, Father, upon your back in your resurrection power, that when God, by his divine authority, raised you from the dead, claiming authority even over sin and death, and raised you, God, into your right hand, where you reign and where you rule over all that is yours in the kingdom, as we claim this ground, wherever we walk as the church, as the people of God, to be your kingdom reign and rule, may we already taste the first fruits of the new age, of things which are enduring and eternal, the love which does not fade and which none can separate us from, the faith which is grounded not in the temporality and the fickleness of our own faith, but the faith that is grounded in your great faithfulness and the hope that shines even and sometimes even more greatly against the backdrop of the darkness. May that hope captivate us, capture us, rivet us, and make us a people of hope and to a world where hope is in short supply that we may be a voice, a face, a touch, a life of hope blazing upward and into the new age. For these things we claim not on our own. In your mercy, in your mercy, we have been given this new birth into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, in whose name we pray. Amen.